Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. At its core, archaeology is an effort to understand the human past through the study of material remnants of the past. And although archaeology is often associated with the ancient world, the material remains that archaeologists study don't have to be thousands of years old. And the branch of archaeology known as historical archaeology focuses on the more recent past, the last 600 years of human history. Dr. Benjamin Pichels will deliver the 2022 Leonard J. Arrington Mormon History Lecture titled Historical Archaeology and the Latter-day Saint Past. That's this evening at 7 in the Russell Wanless Performance Hall at Utah State University. Everyone is welcome. 7 o'clock this evening, Russell Wanless Performance Hall on the USU campus. Uh, Dr. Pichels uh, lives in Bountiful with his wife and four children, earned a bachelor's degree from Brigham Young University, Ph.D., uh, with an emphasis in historical archaeology at University of Pennsylvania uh, at, uh, in uh, Philadelphia. And he was an assistant professor of anthropology at the State University of New York at Potsdam before joining the Historic Sites Division in the Church History Department of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints in uh, 2011. Uh, so we welcome you in, Dr. Pichels. Thank you. It's nice to be here. Thanks for coming. Um, also should uh, mention that uh, you're author of Excavating Nauvoo, Mormons and the Rise of Historical Archaeology in America, which won the Best First Book Award at the Mormon History Association. We'll talk about that as we go along. Um, so how did you get interested in historical archaeology? It's a great question. Thank you. Um, I was a freshman undergraduate uh, at Bid Brigham Young University, and I, I started there wanting to be an astronaut, to be to be ah. honest, <laughs> and then I rolled in my first physics class and uh, promptly discovered that that was not going to work out. And so, uh, I was uh, I was a little bit uh, searching, you know, searching for what I wanted to do. And I was on my way to a calculus class, which was awful, by the way. And I saw an advertisement for a study abroad program to Africa in the anthropology department. And I'll be honest, I don't think I had any clue what anthropology even was at the time. I, I, I don't, I'm not even sure I ever had heard that word. And, uh, but I, I remember being very interested about wanting to go to Africa and go on safari, just big adventure, wanderlust, right? And um, so I applied for the program and was accepted. And as a, as a prerequisite to go to the study abroad, I had to enroll in some introductory anthropology classes. And that's where I first got introduced to uh, anthropology and the subdiscipline of archeology. span uh, interestingly, you know, we, we lived with a, a tribe there in the country of Namibia for a month, camped out with them and studied their, their culture and their way of life. And uh, as I look back on that now and the things that I was interested in, kind of almost subconsciously, but I, I studied their building techniques and their structures and uh, so the material components of their culture. And, uh, you know, at the time, I, I didn't connect that as being you know, a reflection of my interest in archaeology. But when I, I returned from that program and went on a mission for our church and um, came back and immediately went on to another kind of a study abroad program to Nauvoo, Illinois, one of the church's historic sites. And it was there that I fell in love with uh, the history of, our, of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, living in literally living in historic buildings and and taking classes uh, about church history in the very places where it happened. And then it was there I was, um, I remember sitting in one of the old buildings and finding an article from a professor of historical archaeology who was at Brigham Young University at the time. His name was Dale Burge. And he had done excavations in Nauvoo in the 1960s and 70s. And I was reading uh, an article that he had written about one of those excavations, and all of a sudden it kind of hit me that here was here was the opportunity to blend anthropology or archaeology with history, and um, and I just fell in love with that idea. And so I, I, I returned to Provo to finish my studies and declared a major in anthropology with an emphasis in archaeology. Got to take a class from Dale Burge. He was still there at the time. And uh, just really kind of threw myself into that pursuit of studying the history of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints through um, an archaeological, anthropological lens. Very interesting. Now you're able to do that work uh, with, with the Church uh, Historic Science Division, right? Yes. Yeah, so what I, sorts of things do you do? Well, I never dreamed that I would ever work for the Church. Uh, but, um, yeah, no, so I, right now I, uh, I lead a team that's responsible for any kind of project at the church's historic sites in the Northeast. 
uh, everything from Vermont to New York and Pennsylvania and Ohio. And then I, I manage any kind of archaeological project at a church historic site. And there's quite a few. For example, right now we, uh, we're in the middle of restoring Joseph and Emma Smith's home in Kirtland, Ohio. And before we undertook that project, we did a, a lot of archaeology in the yard of that home, looking for any evidence of outbuildings or wells or privies or anything that would give us a, some understanding of what that site looked like at the time that Joseph and Emma Smith lived there. Um, and I'll be talking about tonight a little bit about some other work that we're doing at like the Peter and Mary Whitmer farm where the church was incorporated in, in 1830. Uh, so I don't, I don't, do the archaeology so much myself, although I do find opportunities to get out there and still get my hands dirty a little bit. But I mostly help design the research, the research design and the scope and make sure we get the right kind of archaeological contractors on board to do that work so that we get the, the information that we need to, uh, to interpret and restore these historic sites of the church. Hmm. So define historical archaeology for me. We, you did a little bit in the introduction, which I which I think was written by you. Um, so uh, this is archaeology, but more recent past. Exactly. Yeah, it's an interesting question because you would ask if you got six historical archaeologists in the same room, they might give you six different answers. But the one that I prefer, and the one I think is probably the most robust, is that it's the archaeology of the modern world. Uh, meaning, and this is a this is a concept that historians um, have developed, right? This idea that there was a point in human history where uh, Europeans began to leave Europe and start to colonize the whole world, and the world started to become an interconnected uh, modern world system, if you will. And so, some people criticize that definition because it, it links it to colonialism. Um, and, and there certainly is uh, a lot of historical archaeology that is done about colonial enterprise, both from the colonizer side, but also the colonized. And, um, and there's a lot of rich, interesting uh, archaeologic, archaeological in- investigations that have done that. But, so it, but I like that definition because it, it, it ties it to a subject matter instead of just a method or a time period, right? Because there are other f- forms of archaeology that use text, uh, so some people define historical archaeology as text-aided archaeology. But, you know, we, we've been able to translate Mayan hieroglyphics or Egyptian hieroglyphics and, or other ancient languages, and yet those were not part of a modern world system by any means. And so when we, when we talk about historical archaeology, we're talking about, this, these la- about the last 600 years of human history when the world started to fundamentally change. And, and, and human culture has been changing, well, always been changing, but in interesting in new ways once humans started creating a system that interconnected the whole globe eventually. I mean, to, still going today, of course, but uh, it emerged when, again, those first... Uh, Europeans and and with the aid of technology like new printing presses and new navigation technologies, better ships, compasses, uh, even military technologies like gunpowder and things, all of that contributed to Europeans being able to spread around the world and uh, and fundamentally shape human history that way. I wonder. This just occurred. I'll throw you a curveball here. Um, uh, You know, fast forward two hundred years in the future. Um, I, I don't know if there'd be problems presented to a historical archaeologist by our modern society where so much of what we're doing is in bits and bytes and, you know, electronic. And uh, I, I guess the, you know, the computer chassis, the hardware would, would be in the ground somewhere, but, but the other stuff, would, you know, that's lost in the ether, right? Yeah, it, it's an interesting thought. <laughs> and I, 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 you know, it, it will be interesting to see how the field of archaeology evolves in the future. But uh, it is, you know, as, as, as you said in the beginning, archaeology, the bread and butter is the material remains. But one of the things I love about historical archaeology is that we're not just limited to the artifacts or the objects or the things that survive in the ground, but we draw upon any source of information that we can to help interpret the past, including the historical record, uh, ethnography of living peoples, oral history of living peoples, uh, all of these things. And so in the future, yeah, I mean, the, the digital record is going to, will have to be part of that, uh, that source of information that we draw upon to interpret the past as well. Yeah. 
Now, there are, and this will be part of your presentation, uh, there are some critiques of historical archaeology. The, the one I <laughs> the one I like is tin can archaeology. Is that epithet thrown at you guys? It has been, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. And, uh, yeah, it's interesting that, uh, you know, all archaeology shares that same fundamental interest in the material remains of the past. But it's interesting that... Um, when that when those material remains become so close to us in the present that people think that they they no longer have value or interest from an anthropological perspective meaning they don't think that they can tell us anything about us as humans um, so yeah when you when you come across a tin can scatter out in the middle of the forest um, people think oh it's just trash and it is trash but trash tells us something about ourselves and anthropologists understand that, but it's it's interesting that sometimes uh, other archaeologists that are working in the ancient past can't see that modern trash has the same potential as ancient trash. They're they're working with ancient trash all the time, mm. and they tease out wonderful insights and and perspectives about the past from that trash. And the same tools, the same analytical techniques can be applied to even modern trash. In fact, there's a there's a really group. There's a really interesting group of archaeologists down at the University of Arizona that call themselves garbologists, <laughs> <laughs> and literally they have done fascinating work excavating into modern landfills and just looking at the material culture of the last few decades. Um, there's also archaeologists pushing the boundaries that will go into very recently abandoned homes and just looking at. The, you know, this is not even buried stuff. It's just stuff that's been abandoned and left. And they can they go in there and they kind of analyze and try to understand and interpret human behaviors based on what they see there. It's 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 kind of blending forensic science with with archaeology and anthropology, but uh, it's all rooted in that mater- the material world. Mm. Yeah, that's interesting. Uh, yeah, that's very recent, right? Uh, oh yes, somewhat at least relative re- relatively recently abandoned home, and you go. In, but I imagine you could tell a lot from yeah. from that. I mean, we're we're sitting in a Kwanzaa hut right now, yeah. recording this, and uh, one of the fields that I'm fascinated in is the World War II archaeology. It seems to be that like sometimes people think that 50 years have to pass before something can be a legitimate subject for archaeology, and even then, people reject that notion sometimes. They think that has to be really, really old, and that's that's part of this critique: is that you go to the East Coast and you talk to historical archaeologists working in at Revolutionary War sites or colonial period sites, and nobody nobody's critiquing that. Nobody is saying, "Oh, that's not a legitimate inquiry for archaeology." But you come out here to the American West, where you know it's only been less than two hundred years since uh, since Europeans have been here. And, um, yeah, it just feels too close sometimes for people. Mm-hmm. They, they think that, oh, that's just that's stuff that my grandpa used, and so how can that be a legitimate subject of study? But it is, right? I mean, any anything about uh, our lives that is material can tell us something about ourselves. That's the fundamental premise of archaeology. Yeah. I, uh, I'm curious about that critique. You know, recent is very relative, right? Exactly. But I guess this, if you're studying the ancient world, uh, studying the, the West here, is that, that's just too recent. I wonder where, that, where where's that coming from? You know, it's a good question. I, I don't subscribe to that, obviously. Mm-hmm. But uh, I think it's just that when we get too close to ourselves, that we lose that ability to kind of get some objectivity and and see that, oh, even our lives are subjects of study, right, from, from an anthropological or archaeological perspective. We take it for granted, right? We live amongst material things, and we use them every day of our lives. The clothing that we wear, the, the, the beds that we sleep in, everything, right? We, we live in a material world, and all of those things tell us something about ourselves, our culture, the things we value, uh, the ideas that we're carrying around in our heads and our and our history and how those things evolved and came to be what they are today. So it, it takes a it takes a certain analytical, I think, uh, objectivity to be able to recognize that about ourselves. But mm-hmm. you know, we don't we don't go around always thinking that you know uh, analyzing ourselves. That's yeah, that, that's kind of a weird space to be in. But y- yeah. you can. Uh, puts me in mind of a discussion that, that my wife and I have, which is uh, I tend to be kind of a pack rat. Uh, one example is I, I've kept some, I have in a box some checks from, you know, 25 years ago. 
And it has some meaning to me because it tells me what I was up to at, at that point. Plus, it's become historical because we don't use checks anymore, right? Yeah. Um, I, I guess it's interesting the things we hold on to, right? And that tells us something not only just about your life, but yeah. about your values and that you care about the past and that, yeah, that, that, that there's something about that part of your life that you wanted to preserve. And so, yeah, absolutely. And so this is the stuff that uh, future archaeologists will be grateful for. <laughs> right, right, yeah. Uh, well, let's take a break. When we come back, uh, I want to uh, get into uh, your book a little bit. Sure. You, you wrote about uh, excavating Nabu, right? Yes. Uh, famous city for the Latter-day Saints. Um, and then some conflicts over how do you interpret that and who has control of the past, essentially, right? Exactly. Of how you tell the past. Uh, so we're talking with uh, Benjamin Pichels. Uh, he is giving the, uh, the this year's Leonard J. Arrington Mormon History Lecture. It's titled Historical Archaeology in the Latter-day Saint Past, and that's this evening at 7 in the Russell Wanless Performance Hall at Utah State University. I want to mention as well there's another event tomorrow morning. Um, we had earlier in the week uh, the two Evans Award winners, um, and uh, they'll be in town, along with Dr. Pichels, uh, to receive their awards, and uh, then there'll be a panel discussion with those three following. And so that's tomorrow morning, 9 a.m., uh, with the, the with the awards, and then the panel discussion, 9.30. That's Merrill Kazir Library Room 101, Merrill Kazir Library Room 101, for that, uh, for that event. Um, and that panel discussion is talking about how you... How you interpret the past, right? Yeah. You know, we have two historians and, and a historical archaeologist and kind of thinking about how we use different uh, different objects or documents or other forms of, um, of historical information to write about the past. Yeah. So that's an interesting group, the three of you. So that'll, that'll, be, that'll be a good discussion. I'm looking forward to it. Yeah. Uh, by the way, uh, Terrell Givens and Judy Kawamoto are the, are the two uh, Evans Awards winners. Uh, we'll have more following this break. This is Science by the Slice. Why are there so many species of plants? Why do some plants thrive while others don't? USU ecologist Noel Beckman is exploring these questions by studying spatial characteristics of varied tree species. Patterns of seed dispersal and seed mortality influence the spatial structure of plant populations and the local coexistence of competing species, Beckman says. By examining these new patterns, scientists learn about the mechanisms that allow different plant species to coexist. This segment of Science by the Slice is brought to you by the USU College of Science, offering degree programs in the sciences and mathematics. Details at usu.edu slash science. Thanks for listening to Access U Time. Tom Williams. We're talking with Dr. Benjamin Pichels. <clears throat> He's going to be delivering the 2022 Leonard J. Arrington Mormon History Lecture uh, this evening at 7 o'clock in the Russell Wanless Performance Hall at Utah State University. Everyone is invited. It's 7 o'clock tonight, Russell Wanless Performance Hall at USU. And the title is Historical Archaeology and the Latter-day Saint Past. Um, also, he'll be participating in a panel discussion along with the Evans Awards winners, uh, Terrell Givens and Judy Kawamoto. And uh, that panel discussion is 9.30 uh, tomorrow morning, uh, following the the uh, awarding of those Evans Awards at 9 a.m. And that's Merrill Kazir Library Room 101. Uh, Dr. Pichels is uh, with the Historic Sites Division of the Church History Department of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Uh, previously, he was assistant professor of anthropology at State University of New York at Potsdam, and he's author of Excavating Nauvoo, Mormons and the Rise of Historical Archaeology in America. That's where I want to start this segment, Dr. Pichols. Uh, you, uh, you you studied that. Previously, you had been in Nauvoo, right, as a undergrad? As a student, yeah. As a student, and you said uh, the thrill of you know, being in the actual buildings that were used by those folks some, what, 150 years previous. Um, but uh, so tell me about this, excavating uh, Nauvoo. Yeah, thank you. This actually was my dissertation, and then it was later published as a book. But um, 
you know, when I when I was looking for a dissertation topic, I thought I would. Uh, there was a moment where I was going to just take up the the artifacts that uh, that former professor that we spoke about, Dale Burge, had excavated at Camp Floyd uh, here in Utah, where Johnston's army had, had camped out in the 1850s and 60s. But um, the more I got into uh, the history of historical archaeology and the history of uh, historical archaeology at Latter-day Saint sites, and especially in Nauvoo, the, the more I started to realize that um, what happened in Nauvoo provided a really interesting kind of case study in the historical development of historical archaeology in America. And, uh, and there were some really interesting ties um, between the discipline and the, hist- and the history of the discipline and the, and the history of the Church's Historic Sites program. For example, um, we, so the, ch- the church formed a, a non-for-profit organization to restore Nauvoo called Nauvoo Restoration Incorporated, and that was in 1962. And it was soon after that, uh, and, and from the beginning they wanted to investigate and there were, there were ideas of restoring the Nauvoo Temple. That was kind of the the big idea. And uh, they had hired uh, some archaeologists there in Illinois to do s- some initial work in, in 1962. And then th- there was, a, there was some, some politics that got involved and the excavations kind of ceased until 1965. And that whole time they were looking for an archaeologist, a bona fide archaeologist that could come and kind of run an archaeological program. They, they knew from what they had observed at Colonial Williamsburg and some of their consultants there that archaeology needed to be a part of that program to restore Nauvoo. And, and the person that they landed on was a man named Gene Carl Harrington. He's kind of known as, he was mostly known as J.C. Harrington. His nickname was Pinky Harrington. And, um, and his wife, Virginia, they were both um, archaeologists that had finished long careers with the National Park Service by that time. They had just retired, actually, from the National Park Service. And J.C. Harrington had gotten his start in historical archaeology 30 years prior in the, during the Great Depression. Uh, the, the federal government, you know, with these uh, relief programs like the Civilian Conservation Corps, the Works Progress Administration, they actually employed uh, archaeologists to work at some of these key national historic sites like Jamestown, Virginia. And and the fact that's where J.C. Harrington first started working on historic sites. And this was totally new. Uh, I mean, there had been small or random examples of people digging at historic sites in the past, but this was kind of the first institutional beginning of our discipline and uh, during the 1930s. So he, he proceeds to spend his whole career in the National Park Service excavating some significant American sites like Fort Necessity, Pennsylvania, Fort Raleigh, North Carolina. And then at the end of his career, as he's retiring, he gets recruited to come work at Nauvoo, and he, and he agrees. He and his wife come. Uh, I think they're enamored with the idea of this, this town, this historic site, and its potential to tell the stories of the westward migration uh, in American history. And they spend uh, the next four years there, from 1965 to 1969, excavating a bunch of the sites, including the Nauvoo Temple. Um, so we fast forward into the 1980s, and, well, let me say this, too. At the same time, in the 1960s, the, the, the discipline of historical archaeology is professionalizing. You get the first university classes being taught in historical archaeology at that time, and you actually get... The, the first uh, society, uh, it's called the Society for Historical Archaeology, is organized at that same time in 1967. In fact, there's documents that where J.C. Harrington, while he's working in Nauvoo, they're, they're writing letters about this new society that's emerging, and, uh, and Nauvoo Restoration becomes a founding member of the society. They support it, and J.C. Harrington helped, is, 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 is instrumental in organizing this. He's one of the founding members of this society. So this is where the, the discipline and what's going on in Nauvoo um, comes together. You fast forward to the 1980s, um, J.C. Her- the, the Society for Historical Archaeology creates an award. It's a Lifetime Achievement Award for ar- historical archaeologists that have made great impact on the discipline over their careers. And they choose to name it after J.C. Harrington. It's called the J.C. Harrington Medal. And on the back of this medal, 
They have depictions of the three three archaeological sites that J.C. Harrington is best known for. It's the three that I just mentioned, Fort Raleigh, Fort Necessity, and the Nauvoo Temple mm-hmm. is on the back of this medal. So every year, the Society for Historical Archaeology is awarding this medal to a historical archaeologist who's made a great difference and you know, a great impact in the field. And on every one of those medals, you have a depiction of the Nauvoo Temple. Um, and so it's just a really interesting kind of... Um, merge there where what was going on in Nauvoo at at the with J.C. Harrington at the helm is really a window. I mean, he was the founding, one of the founding fathers of our discipline. And so at the culmination of his career, he is doing uh, what becomes standard at for all historical archaeology. And he's doing it early on right there in Nauvoo with for the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. So the book the book kind of traces that history a little bit, talks, and then it gets into all the different ways that archaeology played a role in restoring Nauvoo and how archaeology also got caught up in some, some political um, infighting between, maybe infighting is too strong of a word. There's some tension there about whose, whose story of Nauvoo is the one that's going to be told and and emerge as, as this story. That who's going to control the narrative? Hmm. I want to have you follow up on that. that it's particularly interesting because I imagine that Nauvoo's not the only site where this has happened, right? Right. No, this you, 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 uh, there, There's an ongoing tug of war over how to interpret the past and what does it mean, right? Always, yeah. Always. And anyone, yeah, anyone that's involved in any kind of exercise in interpreting the past will quickly learn that, yeah, it's... We, we, tell the, we tell our story, our version of the past from a particular perspective, and there are also other competing perspectives out there. And who gets to control that narrative is, uh, is a, fundamentally a political, a political thing. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, you know, archaeologists today that are trained in universities are taught to be reflective about that, right? And to make sure that they are incorporating multiple perspectives and multiple voices and that because – interpreting the past could be and is can be a, a colonial enterprise right like if we're as europeans or whatever we as we're if we're going to go into a a colonial setting and interpret the past from just our perspective what well, what about the people that were colonized what was their perspective what was this experience for like for them and not just for the colonizers and that's in that very question so much historical archaeology has been done hmm. in fact I think historical archaeology has prided itself in the past of being able to give voice, if you will, to some of these uh, people that otherwise wouldn't have a voice uh, through their through the things that they left behind. Um, on the other hand, you might say, "Well, an artifact is an artifact, right?" It's, but I guess it can mean different things, yeah. and, and the emphasis that you put on that, right? And for example, the I guess the 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 argument between the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints and the reorganized Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, now the Community of Christ, was, uh, you know, do do we focus on the westward migration or do we focus on before the westward migration, right? Exactly. And that, that actually was one of the key tensions between the two churches and how they wanted to tell the story of Nauvoo. Um, the, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints at that time and the people involved in Nauvoo Restoration, they were latching on to what they knew the federal government was interested in, right? And, and the state of Illinois, too, which was they saw Nauvoo as the launching point for the great westward migration, right? And Brigham Young leading the Latter-day Saints into the Salt Lake Valley, um, but because that was attached to Brigham Young and uh, and Brigham Young was attached to things like plural marriage and the Nauvoo Temple, which he helped finish, and those were, those were all subjects that the reorganized Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, which is now Community of Christ, those were things that they did not want to emphasize because they they rejected those parts of the history. They did, they did not believe Brigham Young was the rightful successor to Joseph Smith. They, and they did not believe that plural marriage was something that was inspired by God. And they did not believe that the, the ordinances and the rites of the temple, the Nauvoo temple, were, were inspired by God. Those were parts that they rejected. And so this emphasis on Brigham Young and on the westward migration and on the temple, 
that was all something that was a point of contention, if you will, right? Those are things that the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints wanted to emphasize as key parts of the story and things that the community of Christ or what was then the reorganized Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints wanted to de-emphasize. And it was interesting to see how government, state and federal government, kind of maybe unknowingly, unwittingly supported the the Brigham Young story because they were also very much interested in this westward migration narrative. It was a, a story of you know, that was very pertinent in the 1960s when you have a lot of discontent among Americans with what the government was doing, the Cold War and later Vietnam, and there was this need to promote patriotism and nationalism. Like, look at what Americans have done in this great, you know, pull yourself, the story of pull yourself up by the bootstraps and walk across the country and found a new society in the, in the deserts of the American West, right? This was a great story that inspired traditional American values, and the government was very much interested in promoting that, and Nauvoo got wrapped up into that. And um, and so, the, and, and then the state of Illinois, I think even as early as the 1940s, they, had, they actually passed a state resolution spot, or uh, encouraging the reconstruction of the Nauvoo Temple because they thought it would be a great tourist draw. You know, and they, they're interested in drawing tourism and um, to their state. And so with all of these things, you know, the state and federal governments are kind of unintentionally or unwittingly propping up the Brigham Young story and the Temple story, um, giving giving enthusiasm and support and excitement to what the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints was trying to do there. I wonder if we talk about the, 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 everything that surrounds the archaeological record, right? It's not just the record, and you talked about this a little bit briefly, I guess you got the historical record, you got oral histories, you got ethnography, right? Um, you have a slide here. You share, share, shared your slides here with, with me. Uh, thank you uh, for your presentation tonight. Um, this is intriguing to me. Uh, you have the record in the middle, but you have you have the past, but then you have reconstruction of the past, right? All of that goes into it, I, I would imagine, right? Yeah, that slide is intended to kind of communicate, one, the types of information that historical archaeology draws upon, uh, to do their study of the past, but also to communicate that there there was a past, right? We know this. There was an actual thing called the past, and there's events and people in the past. But to be able to, you know, we wish we had a time machine and we could go back and observe that directly. But even then, it would still be our interpretation of the past. And so we can't go back in time, but we have these remnants of the past, whether they're artifacts or objects or documents or photographs or newspapers or people's memories, oral history, or sometimes we can even observe living peoples that are living in ways that we think are very similar to how people lived in the past and, and understand behaviors that way. But even with all of those sources of information, we are still interpreting the past. We're still trying to reconstruct it through imperfect ways. And so there always will be holes and gaps in that reconstruction that we have to fill in with our own perspectives and ideas. And that's why you can end up with multiple different perspectives on what happened in the past. And some of those are in, uh, sometimes in direct conflict with one another, but that's why we end up with hundreds of books about Abraham Lincoln or any other subject. Yeah. Yeah. Very, very true. Um, let's take another break. Uh, we're talking with Dr. Benjamin Peichels. He is the uh, 2022 Leonard J. Arrington Mormon history lecturer and his lecture will be titled Historical Archaeology and the Latter-day Saint Past. That's this evening, 7 o'clock, in the Russell Wanless Performance Hall at Utah State University, and everyone is invited. Also, there will be a panel discussion involving Dr. Pikels, along with the winners of the Evans Biography Award and the Evans Handcart Award. Uh, the awards will be presented tomorrow morning, 9 o'clock, and then the panel discussion will follow at uh, 9.30. By the way, Terrell Givens and Judy Kawamoto are the winners of the Evans Awards. And uh, so the panel discussion is 9.30 tomorrow morning uh, after the awards, and that's Merrill Kazir Library 101. Uh, and everyone's invited to that uh, as well. We'll have more following this. 
Support for Utah Public Radio comes from listeners like you and Salt Lake City Weekly, a Utah news source since 1984 covering news, politics, music, and more in Salt Lake City and beyond. Available weekly at 1,800 locations across the Wasatch Front or online at cityweekly.net. Support also comes from the Utah Women and Leadership Project at Utah State University, creators of the Utah Women and Leadership podcast series. Information and episodes are available at utwomen.org. The next Bringing War Home Roadshow is in Moab on Saturday, October 22nd. This time, I'll be there for a live taping of Access Utah. I hope you'll join me at 10 a.m. at the USU Moab campus. There'll be light refreshments. I'd love to see you there. Afterwards, of course, we hope you'll stay and participate in the Bring Your Home project by showing us an object from military service that's important to your family and by sharing with us your story. That's Moab, Saturday, October 22nd, 10 a.m. Hope to see you there. Hi, I'm Natalie Gawkner. I represent the Political Center. Join us for both sides of the aisle from KCPW. A weekly debate over politics, policy, and current issues facing the state of Utah, featuring voices representing the right, the center, and the left. Both Sides of the Aisle attempts to help you understand the important questions facing residents of this state while proving that Republicans and Democrats can sit in a small room and have a meaningful conversation. Tune in Thursday mornings at 10 here on Utah Public Radio. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We're talking with Dr. Benjamin Pichels. He will be delivering the 2022 Leonard J. Arrington Mormon History Lecture titled Historical Archaeology in the Latter-day Saint Past this evening at 7 in the Russell Wanless Performance Hall at Utah State University. And uh, you are invited. So, Dr. Pichels, um, we, we won't get to even the half of your presentation here on this program, which is, which is all to the good. People have to come and, 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 uh, and hear your presentation. I do want to talk about the Provo Tabernacle. This, I think, will uh, you know, maybe strike people's imagination because you can, you can actually go there, right? It's uh, at least drive past it. It's now the Provo City Center Temple for the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Tell me about, tell me about this. Um, and how historical archaeology contributed, I guess, to that project. Yeah, thank you. It's a, it's a, it was a great project. In fact, it was one of the, I think it was probably the first project that uh, we had to do archaeology project after I joined the church history department in 2011. <clears throat> the tabernacle had burned, uh, I believe, in December of 2010, and um, when the church leaders announced that they would be converting that into a temple. Um, my colleagues who knew that tabernacle really well understood that the temple would would have to necessarily go underground and be bigger uh, to the north of that tabernacle to accommodate the, the, the facilities of the temple, right? And they knew that um, there was an earlier tabernacle that sat there once uh, north of the, the one that burned. And so we, and we, and we knew that that area would be impacted by the temple construction. And so we said, well, we need to, we need to find out if any of that earlier tabernacle survives, because if it does, we need to document it before it gets impacted by the construction of the temple. So uh, we, we teamed up with a geologist from the, from Brigham Young University that we had worked for, worked with in the past, geophysicists that use a technology called ground penetrating radar. And that helps uh, visualize buried features. Uh, it's not like the movies so much, but uh, it does help us see where there are, are buried objects and features in, at some level of detail. And so we were there and we did a number of ground penetrating, uh, ground penetrating radar surveys and were able to visualize that we you know, looked like almost the entire foundation of that earlier tabernacle that was built in the 1850s. One of the earliest tabernacles that the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints built uh, after arriving in Utah. It looked like the whole foundation was there. And so we did some small test pits over one of the corners. And sure enough, I mean, the, the, the sandstone foundation walls, you know, nearly five feet in thickness were there. And at that time, we, uh, we hired a group out of BYU called the Office of Public Archaeology to do a full-scale excavation of that entire site in anticipation of, of it being impacted by the temple construction. And they worked all winter long 
um, and they involved students from BYU, and it was right downtown Provo, so it was a wonderful kind of public archaeological investigation. People could come and watch the archaeologists digging and uncovering things, and the entire foundation was there, and it had been there all along. Uh, so interesting to think of people picnicking on what was a park for many, many years, not realizing that they were on top of the the foundation of this earlier tabernacle. Um, and some really interesting things emerged from that excavation that I'll be talking about tonight, things that um, that confirm some of the behaviors and activities that were going on in that tabernacle that we knew that we know from historical sources like newspapers. Um, but just uh, to see that remnant of the past and the people of Provo got really excited about that, right? This was a part of their history and their heritage. Um, and uh, so, yeah, and the, I'll, I'll be showing some pictures of that excavation tonight and talking about some of the things that uh, were found there. A lot of what you find are the, in terms of artifacts, right? A lot of the architecture still survived, but this was the basement of the building and it had a wood floor and the the artifacts, most of them are really small. The things that fell through the f- cracks of the floorboards, you know, slate pencils that mm. the kids were using because we know that that space was used for school at some point, but also little tiny children's toys, little dolls, little little toys that they had and that, you know, fell through the cracks of the floorboards. You can imagine them being sad, mm-hmm. <laughs> losing their mm-hmm. little toy, but also evidence of... Um, uh, there's a great newspaper article or a little advertisement that we found in the historical newspaper that advertised chicken dinners being served. All you can eat chicken dinners for 25 cents <laughs> in the basement of the Provo Tabernacle. And sure enough, we found chicken bones and and coins, actually, but also uh, dishes and other things that you can imagine were used uh, as part of some of these events, uh, these chicken dinners or other festivities or activities that were being held in the basement. So it's a good example of how historical archaeology can uh, not only confirm what we know about the past, but also um, complete our understanding of what happened there. It's, um, it was a great project. Um, the, uh, the artifacts are still uh, in the possession of the Museum of People and Culture, Peoples and Cultures at BYU, and had a, we were able to put on a great display of some of those artifacts during the open house of the Provo City Center Temple so people could come and learn the history of that block, including the history of this earlier tabernacle and see some of the the remnants of the past. Um, I want to have you tell me a little bit about Yosepa. You've done some work uh, out there. So, so for people who don't know, tell tell us what Yosepa is. Yeah, great. Yosepa um, is a Latter-day Saint settlement out in the West Desert here of Utah, west of Grantsville, in the Skull Valley, in the same same valley where the Dugway Proving Grounds are today, and where there's there's a Goshoot Native American reservation there as well, and um, this was a settlement that was uh, founded from 1889 until 1917 by mostly Pacific Islander converts to the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter Day Saints, mostly Hawaiians, but some other Pacific Islanders as well, and. Uh, they they founded a town out there. It was an existing ranch that uh, was purchased to, as a home for them, and um, and they lived there for that twenty year period. Uh, at the, at the at its peak, there were almost three hundred individuals out there. The town won an award at one point before it was disbanded for kind of the one of the cleanest and most beautiful towns of Utah, and. Um, and it is just a fascinating uh, place. A lot of my interests academically in historical archaeology have been the question of like what what happens culturally when um, Mormonism confronts people, other other peoples, other ethnic, other ethnicities, right? And uh, this was a great case study uh, to explore archaeologically that way, where you have. Pacific Islanders leaving their homelands in the South Pacific, coming to the deserts of Utah, having joined a new religion and living in this new, not just physical environment, but this new kind of cultural environment of at, you know, at the headquarters of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints at the time. And, uh, and what, how does that manifest? What, what does that do to both the, uh, the converts but also to the the longtime members of the church that were there living amongst them. And um, 
and I'll be I'll be showing some examples tonight about what some of the artifacts we think reveal about those kinds of questions. Um, one thing that I I won't show tonight because we don't have time is but th- uh, there is a, a, a large limestone boulder up in the mountains above Yosepa, and on it are Hawaiian petroglyphs. And uh, so here's it's a great example of how the uh, the Pacific Islander converts bring their culture with them, and they even uh, you know physically impose it into a new landscape. Right, pecking pe- pecking petroglyphs into a into a piece of limestone right in the Utah desert, but these images evoke um, cultural values that uh, they're bringing with them and that are still evolving as they adapt to their new world here. But there's images of um, palm trees and ocean and waves. Um, there's also images of sharks and and sea turtles, you know, the things that do not exist, obviously, in the deserts of Utah, but that are part of their their cultural milieu, if you will. And the more I dug into kind of Hawaiian culture, the more fascinated it became because what I learned, for example, about those uh, sea creatures, in fact, it's not just sea creatures, there's images of lizards as well. But this this represents a, um, a cultural category of being in Hawaiian uh, ideology, and it's called, in Hawaiian, it's called amakua, and it's basically deified ancestors. Hawaiians believe that the spirit of human beings persists after death and that they go back into the underworld where spirits emerged at birth also, and, um, and that their ancestors can reappear to them in the, in the form of animals. And, uh, and it's, it's the animals that can traverse these two, these two worlds, right? Animals that can surface like a sea turtle out of the ocean or a shark or a lizard that comes up out of the ground. Uh, even a rabbit that lives underground. There's pictures of rabbits on this rock. But any animal that can kind of traverse these two different realms, the un- underworld and the upper world, Hawaiians believe that uh, those are those can be their deified ancestors kind of reappearing to them and checking in on them. And so to, to have that um, in the Utah desert and uh, on this boulder that's overlooking the town really says something interesting about uh, how – they're, they're taking their existing cultural values and bringing them with them and putting them into this new landscape as a way to kind of bridge the two worlds. Um, in fact, that, that bridge is, is depicted in one of the petroglyphs, which is it's, it's a depiction. It's a circle that depicts the earth and it has two palm trees sprouting out of the top of it. And then there's this kind of zigzag line that represents the western coast of the United States. And then there's three dots off to the west and one dot off to the east. The three dots off to the west represent the islands of the South Pacific and the one dot off to the right or to the east represents uh, Utah or Salt Lake City. So it's a, it's a cultural map showing their two homelands and how they, you know, they, they see them both as their homelands, where they came from and where they're living now and how the two worlds are combining in Yosepa. Yeah, it fires the imagination because it's, it's the, I think because of the extremes, right? You could tropical island to a desert, right? The the the, the differences in the culture. Uh, well, we've reached the the end of our time. Uh, come and hear much more uh, in the lecture tonight. We've been talking with uh, Benjamin Pichels, uh, who is uh, currently working with the Historic Sites Division of the Church History Department of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter Day Saints. Um, and he's author of a book, Excavating Nauvoo, Mormons and the Rise of Historical Archaeology in America. Uh, he'll be giving uh, the 2022 Leonard J. Arrington Mormon History Lecture, titled Historical Archaeology in the Latter-day Saint Past, this evening at 7 in the Russell Wanless Performance Hall at Utah State University. And uh, he'll be participating in a panel discussion with the Evans Award win- Awards winners, Terrell Givens and Judy Kawamoto. That uh, panel discussion is 9.30 tomorrow morning. Merrill Kazir Library 101, and that comes after the 9 o'clock uh, awards presentations for the Evans Awards. Um, Dr. Pachos, thank you so much. Appreciate it. Thank you, Tom. And we'll go out as we do on uh, Thursdays with Leo T. and uh, Skywatcher. Cultures One Sky, Skywatcher Leo T here as we look up, look around, and get a little bit lost in space. 
After a beautiful October day, as the sky darkens from sunset and deep blues to purples, look for bright capella sparkling as it climbs above the snow-capped Wasatch Front or the pink buttes at Red Butte and the terracotta of the Moab Rim. Then arc your view up higher above the southwestern spot Altair and its two outrigger stars in Aquila the Eagle. And a little ways from here is brighter Vega. It's blue and white and shiny. And if you can get out of the city or grab your binoculars or both, you can look to the left above Altair and you'll find Delphinus the Dolphin, or I like to call it Delphinius. Leaping in and out of the Milky Way is Delphinus the Dolphin. It's kind of a diamond-shaped constellation. And if you're creative, you can see the dolphin or maybe the shape of an old-fashioned UFO. Give it a look. See what you think. And at arm's length from Altair's upper right is fainter and sublime Sagita the Arrow arcing across the sky. Well, just above the Big Dipper as well is a semi-circle of stars called the Corona Borealis, or the Crown, but in some native cultures it's called the Council of the Chiefs, or to the Blackfoot tribe of Alberta, Canada, Montana, and Idaho, it's known as the Spider God. In this Blackfoot star myth, the Spider God, or Corona Borealis, sits in his web in the stars nearby, or Hercules, the constellation, and watches over the land. Sometimes he climbs down from the summer Milky Way to visit the Earth, and maybe during the autumn. On Skywatcher Leo T, we've been exploring and investigating Pluto and its moons as revealed to us from the New Horizons space probe that traveled uh, just 3 billion miles out to scope out the little planet in 2015. Last week we looked at one of Pluto's moons, the amazing moon Charon, with a canyon longer than the Grand Canyon, and Pluto itself showing a terrain that surprised NASA scientists with dunes. Nitrogen ice flows, mountainous regions, plains, and recent discoveries show that Pluto may be more habitable than we thought with an underground ocean since its early days. Wow. And not stopping there, the amazing New Horizons space probe then fired its thrusters and blasted another billion miles out to the asteroid or Kuiper Belt to check out a weird double-lobed space rock known at the time as Ultima Thule. Photos on the Skywatcher site show this very far out double asteroid from just 18,000 miles out. What's next for New Horizons? Deeper exploration of the asteroid belt just to see what's out there. And keeping New Horizons company in a way is OSIRIS-REx, the spacecraft that shot 4.5 billion miles out to Bennu, the briquette-looking space rock arriving in 2019. Not only did OSIRIS-REx take snapshots, but it went in for a scoop of Bennu, and after orbiting and a very complicated process, researching for six months started back home this year. After orbiting the sun twice, for gravitational assists back to Gaia, it'll drop off its cache of asteroid stuff in the West Desert in 2023. Now that's space exploration. As we look up, look around, and get way lost in space, Skywatcher Leo T on UPR with translator stations statewide and streaming live. At Utah Public Radio, we count on contributions from listeners to bring you breaking news, coverage of world events, the environment, and everything else you hear. One way you can help is to donate a vehicle you no longer need. Thanks to Nathan Laser in Salt Lake City who recently donated a vehicle. Join Nathan and support UPR by donating the old car sitting in your garage. Learn more at upr.careasy.org. And thanks. Listening to Utah Public Radio, a statewide service of Utah State University and the College of Humanities and Social Sciences. KUSR Logan, KUSK Vernal, KUSL Richfield, KUST Moab, KCEU Price, KUSU FM Logan, also heard at UPR.org.